this Monday, the U.S. and allies announced sanctions against certain Chinese officials for serious human rights abuses against Uyghurs. The joint statement claims to have evidence of severe restrictions on religious freedoms, the use of forced labor, mass detention and internment camps, forced sterilizations, and the concerted destruction of Uyghur heritage. China responded almost immediately with similar penalties, announcing sanctions against 10 EU politicians and four entities for maliciously spreading lies and disinformation. In this tenuous environment, what are the steps forward to the important US-China relationship? Good evening and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program this evening features Paul Hanley, who holds the Maurice R. Greenberg Director's Chair at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center based at Tsinghua University in Beijing, China. He is joined in conversation with Matt Rooney, Managing Director of the Economic Growth Initiative at SMU and the George W. Bush Institute. We have a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. The Council is incredibly grateful for all of its supporters, and tonight I'd like to especially thank Maisie Hyken for her program sponsorship. Maisie serves on the Council's Board of Directors, and we thank her for her continued support of our mission and the Focus on China series. I'd like to remind everyone that you too can sponsor a program for as little as 500 or a thousand bucks and to get in touch with Alana Buenrostro at 956-466-1149 about sponsorship opportunities. Moderating tonight's discussion is a good friend of the council, Matt Rooney. He joined the Bush Center in June 2015, following a lengthy career as a Foreign Service Officer with the State Department. As head of the Bush Institute's Economic Growth Initiative, Matt focuses on analyzing the impacts of the USMCA on the growth, job creation, and competitiveness of the economies of the US, Canada, and Mexico. Matt, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Thanks very much for joining us again. And with that, I hand it over to you and Paul. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Liz, for, uh, for this opportunity. It's a pleasure to share this forum with Paul Henley. And if I may, Liz, welcome to Dallas. I'm sure you're getting tired of uh, being told that, but but uh, welcome nonetheless. I hope you have as has an enjoyable and, and uh, uh, professionally stimulating time here as I have had over these last several years. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, as Liz mentioned earlier, uh, Paul is at the uh, Carnegie Tsinghua Center at Tsinghua University in Beijing, China, where I understand he's been for the better part of a decade. Uh, he also serves as an adjunct professor at Tsinghua University and sits on the board of directors of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Prior to this, uh, Paul was two years director for China-Taiwan and Mongolia Affairs on the National Security Council staff, straddling the, the administrations of Presidents uh, Bush and Obama, and he played a key role during that period as White House representative to the U.S. negotiating team at the six-party talks, nuclear negotiations. Paul trained as a China foreign affairs officer in the US Army, 
was assigned twice to the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, served as a U.S. Army company commander uh, during a two-year tour in Korea, the Republic of Korea, and worked in the Pentagon as an advisor on China, Taiwan, and Mongolia affairs on the staff of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Paul, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to Dallas, virtually. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure, and thank you for the invitation to join the World Affairs Council at uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. I really appreciate it. Great. So, so let's get to it, Paul. Um, we talked the other day in preparation for today's conversation, and, and the, the question uh, really that I wanted to start with was, um, during many of the years that you've been in Beijing and many of the years that you worked on U.S.-China relations uh, before going to Beijing as, a, as an official of the U.S. government, um, uh, I think it's safe to say that U.S. policy was based on the idea of the what, what's called the responsible stakeholder, that if we could draw China into the multilateral system and, 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 and get them to invest and buy in, that we could uh, sort of moderate Chinese behavior and show China a path to uh, a place at, at the top table of the global economy and global politics. Um, in the last number of years, since 2008, perhaps, the, the, uh, the economic crisis that shook the United States and certainly the rise of Xi Jinping, um, that's not looking like as good a play. Was that a mistake? Was that naive? Was that, um, uh, is, is that, is that no longer relevant? Well, thanks, Matt. And uh, you start out with the $64,000 question. Uh, it's a great question. And what you described was, in fact, uh, one part of President Bush's uh, China policy. There were other quieter parts, which I'll talk about, which you frankly see still evident today. I think we have to, you know, keep in mind at the beginning of the Bush administration, we were still grappling with many of the same issues that the Trump administration and now the Biden administration is facing. You know, how should the U.S. deal with a resurgent China? Is China a partner or competitor? You know, how does China factor into the broader Asia strategy? I think President Bush saw some potential which you alluded to in the engagement, try to shape China's rise in more positive ways. But President Bush was very clear-eyed. He also saw risks uh, with China's rise. Um, and what's interesting is that those pieces of the strategy that took on the risks, uh, the hedging or the balancing aspects were frankly adopted by Obama, Trump, and now Biden. Uh, the most obvious with Biden, of course, was right out of the box focusing on alliances, which is something that the Bush administration brought back into the equation after the decade after the Cold War, our alliance relationships needed to be uh, rejuvenated. And President Bush took that on with in mind a China that would evolve in ways inimical to US interests. But you saw President Biden meet with the leaders of the Quad. The Quad is a grouping of democratic partners in the region, Japan, Australia, and India. President Biden, when he announced it last Friday with the heads of government of those countries, showed a video of President Bush starting the Quad and gave full credit to President Bush. And so I think some of the other things that you think about that President Bush laid down, again, was the U.S. alliance structure, U.S. relationship with Japan, very, very strong. Uh, and you notice that President, Biden, uh, the President Biden's uh, Secretary of State and, Nas and National Security Advisor visited Japan and Korea before going to Alaska to meet with the Chinese officials there. Uh, President Bush attended every APEC summit, 
uh, in the region, Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation uh, Grouping. Uh, even after 9-11, he went to APEC in uh, Shanghai. New multilateral forums were created like the six party talks, which you mentioned, and the Quad. Um, and so these building blocks were put in place by the end of the administration, frankly, I think there was quite a bit of concern about uh, China's rise um, on a number of fronts, um, but President Bush had put in place the balancing and the hedging elements that the Obama administration took up, Trump administration as well, and now the Biden team, which gives the US leverage in dealing with a rising China. Last thing, let me just say, Matt, you have to remember too, at the in 2001, when President Bush took office, China's GDP only accounted for about three to 4% of global economic growth. Uh, at the end of the administration, that had doubled to about 7%. 10 years later, in 2018, China's share of GDP on the world stage is more than 16%. And in the coming decade, China is expected to overtake the US. So its rise has happened very quickly. I think, you know, we were always aware that Marxist-Leninist uh, tendencies in a one-party authoritarian system are always there. President Bush was trying to encourage those non-Leninist forces, but also had a strategy of balancing and hedging in the event that China did not evolve that way. And China has, has made a choice in which direction it's going to evolve. I must say, as a, as a non-China guy in my diplomatic career, I focused mostly on transatlantic in Latin American affairs, what it always seemed to me, I was I always asked myself, um, responsible stakeholder, but China didn't design any of those organizations. And we're talking about a nation with a what five thousand year history as a nation state. Um, was it really realistic to think that China was not going to rearrange the furniture as it made its way into those organizations? You know, that that was challenging, I think. At the time, it was not as challenging. Um, you know, the Clinton administration had negotiated China's accession into the WTO. That happened formally in the Bush administration a year later. Uh, within that agreement uh, that China adhered to were commitments that China was to take on uh, that uh, could lead China to embrace market reform principles. Um, what we have seen China do instead is integrate where it is in China's interest to do so. But now we see China, because it's stronger, more powerful, more confident, it is pushing on the international institutions to accommodate to where Chinese leaders say China is different. And so for, I think, the Bush administration, we saw mostly the integration of where China was willing to integrate. And then at the, especially at the end of the Obama administration and into the Trump administration, we have now seen a China that says, we have differences. We're not going to take lock, stock and barrel, this international system. And in fact, it's even more sharp and pointed. We heard Yang Jiechir say, look, we will buy into the United Nations system, but this, uh, this, this, this international norms and rules that you describe the United States is, is basically what, what you want us to ascribe to. It does not re represent the views of the entire international community. It is you and uh, several countries in the West. Uh, after the Alaska meeting, the, the uh, foreign ministry spokesman then came out and, and, and remarked that the West 
countries in the democratic West make up 11% of world population. So they are now very much, and I think this has a lot to do with the confidence that they have gained, and I can talk about why that is, but they are really now pushing back and uh, much more pointed about where they see differences. Unlike Russia, who would overthrow the entire international system if it had its druthers, I don't think that's where China is. I think China sees many aspects of it consistent with its own interests, but now we're beginning to see a number of fronts where China says we have a different view. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's interesting. That doesn't surprise me that much. A, a nation like that is not gonna just take as a fait accompli a bunch of rules that it wasn't even involved in, in negotiating. So um, I wanna turn, just if, I, if you don't mind, to uh, an audience question, which I think fits here. And that is, you've talked a lot about this kind of emerging sense of conflict today is too strong a word perhaps, but, but emerging sense of friction between, between us and the Chinese. Should, should the US fear China? Is, is that sense of fear of China, is that um, about a need for us to have an adversary to focus our attention? Is it about making a case for increased defense spending or, or is it really something we should be concerned about? Well, that's a great question. You know, I've, as you said, I've spent the last 10 years in China. Uh, I've been in the U.S. for a year with, with the global pandemic, but I've been in China for the last uh, 10 years living with my family and, um, you know, running the Carnegie Think Tank and have a lot of conversations with Chinese experts and government officials. When you talk to them about why the downturn in U.S.-China relations, what you hear is this they talk about the Graham Allison, Harvard University professor, uh, his Thucydides trap. And that is the natural result of a diminishing US power. And there's many in China that believe the US is in inevitable decline and China's rise. And many in China believe China's rise is inevitable. Um, and as part of this narrative, there has been over the last four years, an immense focus on Donald Trump and the actions that he and his administration took against China um, Trump has been just a dominant and unconventional figure, has taken up a lot of the oxygen. Um, and if you hear the speeches today uh, from Chinese leaders, the message is basically, and they brought this to Anchorage last week, uh, that the Trump administration is responsible 100% for the downturn in relations, and it's up to the Biden administration to fix the relationship and put it on, on more solid footing. My own view is to understand why the deterioration in relations. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. You have to look at what's happened in China over the last 10 years. And frankly, that's not enough part of the debate. There have been dramatic changes that have taken place, um, you know, moving away from obligations around the WTO commitments that they have made moving from focusing on their reform efforts to become more of a market-oriented economy to becoming a much more state-led economy. Uh, on the uh, 
on the political side, uh, the political atmosphere in China has is much more repressed, uh, much more control by the one party system. Um, and this is very different, I think, than people thought would take place when President Xi Jinping came to office. Uh, I remember the New York Times, uh, one of the former bureau chiefs of Beijing, uh, Nicholas Kristof, wrote a piece, and he talked about Xi Jinping coming in, spearheading you know, economic reform, uh, political easing. Uh, he talked about Mao's body would be pulled out of Tiananmen Square, and Liu Xiaobo would win the Nobel, the Nobel Peace Prize winning writer would be released from prison. Well, I think people got it wrong. Uh, Xi Jinping has usher, ushered in reform, but it's not the kind of reform, uh, the liberal reform that we had hoped to see. What it means for him is consolidation, reassertion of the party control, crackdown on dissent and corruption and revamp of the party ideology. And then on the foreign policy front, this notion of what, what, what used, the Chinese leaders used to call hide and bide um, has, has been abandoned. Uh, this low profile international approach completely abandoned by Xi Jinping. And you see a much more aggressive approach to foreign policy issues. And of course, over the last several years, we've seen moves on Hong Kong, uh, you know, uh, terrible atrocities in Xinjiang, much more pressure and aggression toward Taiwan, a border conflict uh, with India. So a much more aggressive China. And I think that these are the factors that have contributed mostly to the downturn in US-China relations. I think at the end of the Obama administration, you saw that frustration grow and it carried into the Trump administration. And there's really bipartisan now consensus, especially on Capitol Hill and among policy elites about the challenges that China brings to the table. Thanks. So that that conversation lays a great foundation to turn to talk about sort of a status quo and what to expect in the future. But I want to ask one more retrospective question, uh, if you don't mind. And it, while you were talking a moment ago about China's share of global GDP, an audience member posed a, a question that interests me as well. And that is, I have to say, I, I always kind of thought they were cooking the books and, and some of those numbers were not necessarily terribly reliable. What's your sense of that? Are, is, are those numbers real? Are they are they reliable? Is, is, that, is that real that China is that big in, the, in, the, in global GDP? Well, so the first part of that question, can you trust the numbers? And uh, the answer to that is clearly no, you cannot trust the numbers. Um, the, you know, China has set a, a target uh, for GDP growth. Um, they, they, they eliminated that a couple of years ago, um, but for a long period, they set a target. And that really is a political target. And you can bet that every year they're going to meet that target or exceed that target. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean that their economy is not doing extremely well. Um, while you cannot you know, trust the exact numbers, uh, they have had considerable growth in China. And you just, anybody who's traveled uh, in China, just you, you can see it. It's, uh, it's, it's very, very powerful. Um, and so the numbers may not be there, but um, exactly, but it's there. And it's, it is one of the factors, frankly, that is, that is giving Chinese leaders a huge amount of confidence, frankly, you know, hubris, you could say, uh, in many regards. Uh, China feels in many ways that, you know, it's back. Uh, it is going through this process of rejuvenation uh, and returning to its rightful place on the international stage. Um, 
you know, what is interesting, and, and I, think the, I think the economy is a big part of that. Also, the fact that uh, once the uh, global pandemic hit, and of course, the Americans uh, focused clearly on uh, the fact that in the early stages, the Chinese leaders were trying to hide what was actually taking place in China uh, and were not transparent and were not cooperating. And that is all true. But once they moved beyond that phase, they were able to contain and mitigate uh, the virus uh, very successfully. Uh, and this has also contributed, uh, especially against the backdrop of what is what has happened uh, with COVID over the last year in the United States and other countries where policies were with mixed success. So uh, for a lot of these reasons, these Chinese leaders now have, have uh, you know, quite a bit of confidence. Um, and what that means is uh, you see then the rhetoric from Chinese leaders about, you know, we're going to sit back uh, to the Biden administration, we're going to sit back and we're going to watch and wait to see if you can fix the, the um, mistakes that the Trump administration made. Uh, and there is uh, little self-reflection from Chinese leaders about their own contributions to the downturn. And that's interesting because, you know, if you look at polls, not just in the United States, but around the world, you will see that unfavorable views of China have gone through the roof. Uh, and again, it's not just the United States. And, you know, I was in a discussion today with senior China watchers. Uh, we asked the question, do Chinese leaders even recognize this anti-China sentiment that's growing around the world? And the conclusion of many was that um, they, they do not because they are feeling their oats. They're feeling quite good, especially against the backdrop of political dysfunction in the United States, rising populism uh, in Europe, Brexit. And before that, I think the start of this sort of uh, reassessment of China's own strength compared to the rest of the world started, frankly, with the global financial crisis. And I think that had a big impact on the way China saw itself, saw the rest of the world, and in particular, the United States. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. So that lays a great foundation. Let's talk a little bit about the status quo and going forward, the Biden administration, obviously still um, finding its feet as it were, still quite early in its term. The, the trends that you just outlined seem to set the stage for the sort of confrontational meeting that took place in Alaska last week. Is that, is that your sense as well? Were you surprised at all, particularly by the rant from the, I think it was the deputy foreign minister who kind of went off I don't know if you went off script, but he seemed to go a little off the rails. You know, my own assessment of this is that a lot of what we saw is, is, is both sides responding to their domestic political uh, audiences. Um, but it is also, on the U.S. side, it is also substantive in that I think, you know, the way I think about it is the Biden team coming into office, when they when they thought about the Trump administration's approach to China, I think there's a lot of overlap in the assessment of the challenges that China represents. And the Trump administration did uh, you know, a, quite a, a good job of putting a spotlight on the malign activities, on the mercantilistic approach of the Chinese, on you know, areas uh, that are you know, cropping up that are not reciprocal or unfair that put the US and other 
countries in the in the world in a disadvantage. China's um, you know quest for a technological development, some licit, some illicit stealing of technology. Trump administration put a spotlight very clearly on all of this, and the Biden team agrees with a lot of that assessment. Where the Biden team distinguishes, wants to distinguish itself from the Trump administration is it feels that the Trump administration's, many of its policies were ad hoc. Uh, they were not, uh, wasn't part of a coherent interagency strategy tied to resources. It was not well thought through. And, and as a result, a lot of it actually hurt US companies' interests or the broader interests of Americans, sometimes more than it hurt China. So what you hear from the Biden team is we're gonna, we're gonna compete smarter. We're gonna confront China where we feel our interests are being undermined or the interests of our partners and allies around the world. And that's a big part of it. Um, we're going to try to solve problems with China uh, in a more effective way than the Trump administration did. And we're not going to have a knee-jerk opposition to cooperation uh, like the Trump administration did if there is interest on our side, if it's within our mutual uh, national interests. Um, that is a hard balancing act to pull off. What we saw, I think, uh, in Alaska was the conf confrontation piece, that we're gonna confront China. We're going to be tough with China. What we haven't seen yet are the other elements of that. How are they gonna compete smarter? How are they gonna solve problems? And how are they going to cooperate on issues that it makes sense for the U.S. to, to cooperate, whether it's climate change, the global pandemic, Iran, Afghanistan. There are a number of issues that require cooperation. Um, the last thing I'll say on cooperation, from my own experience, Matt, and you alluded to this in your question, uh, it's been complicated. Uh, and I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that China for a long time has felt inferior, like it's having to catch up with the other major powers in the world. And so when the U.S. would go to China, and I was part of a lot of these delegations, and say, you know, we've assessed our interests on North Korea, we've, we've, we've assessed your interests on North Korea, and we think we have overlapping interests. Would, do you want to work together? Chinese see that as an ask for help on a U.S. agenda. They do not see it as two big powers cooperating because it is in their mutual interest and beneficial to the international community. So what China would then do is try to say, well, we're going to help you on North Korea. We want you to take it easy on us on Taiwan. And the Biden team has said, we're not going to have any of that. And uh, the Chinese have pushed back and said, no, that's the way diplomacy works. So cooperation is going to be a bit complicated. Um, and I think at best early on, what you'll see is coordination instead. They'll coordinate on big issues, but cooperation is a different issue. You alluded to this uh, earlier, uh, but let's explore the question a little further. The, the, it sounds from what you're saying that the Chinese don't see the transition from Trump to Biden as an opportunity that they can or should seize or can make something of. They're, they seem to be, in your view, they're waiting for to see what Biden does. They're not. They're not kind of looking at it as as an opportunity for a sort of reset. I think the Chinese want to stabilize the relationship, but they want to do it on their own terms, and they don't want to offer anything up to stabilize it. 
they're very demanding. And as I said, their posture has not been well received by the Biden team. And I think that played a lot into the Alaska meeting as well. You know, when I talk to Chinese interlocutors now, what I say to them is both sides need to be much more self-reflective and think about the kind of things that uh, policies and actions and rhetoric, behaviors that you know, we're, we're contributing in unhelpful ways to the relationship. Um, I believe that our presidential campaign is in itself a self-reflective act because the Biden team, you know, analyzed the Trump administration's policies and is trying to correct what it perceives were the mistakes. Number one, it's going to tone down the rhetoric. There was a lot of, of really heated rhetoric out of the Trump administration calling the virus, the China virus, or Kung flu, you know, these things, um, you know, are often co counterproductive and create that friction in the relationship. The Biden administration will engage in dialogue more than the Trump administration was willing to do. The Trump administration had decided that, you know, dialogue was uh, a way for the Chinese to avoid making hard decisions. So the Trump administration dr dropped dialogues. The Biden team will have officials throughout the interagency that are empowered to engage China. Um, these are all improvements, Matt. Um, these are all steps that the Biden administration has taken unilaterally that the Chinese will welcome and will see as positive, contributing positively to the US-China relationship. What are the things that China is willing to do? We haven't seen any. Um, and again, I think, you know, China has yet to be willing to take agency. The fact that there are things that China could do. I mean, China now has this wolf warrior rhetoric that is in overdrive by ambassadors around the world. And we saw Yang Jiechir deliver a lot of it in Alaska. Um, you know, they have not, uh, you know, lowered the temperature of their rhetoric. They have not come to the U.S. Um, in a way that acknowledges uh, some of the US concerns and the international concerns. We see a very strident uh, approach by Chinese leaders. And I think if that's going to continue to be their approach, I am fearful that we'll see an unhappy reckoning in US-China where some see an opportunity with Biden to kind of put the relationship on better footing. If the Chinese are not more proactive and um, willing to to uh, engage in a, in a more healthy way, I think we're going to see an unhappy reckoning pretty soon within the first year. You know, you said you said something in passing earlier that 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 struck me. You alluded to domestic political dynamics within China. I think many Americans sort of assume that China is an authoritarian uh, an authoritarian state and and doesn't really have any doesn't really have to answer to domestic politics, but what is the domestic politics, particularly of the US relationship in China? Where are the limits with respect to um, that political dynamic for the Chinese leadership? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, Xi Jinping does have his own politics, but I have to say um, he has consolidated power in a way um, that makes him, as we say, uh, large and in charge. Um, and he is, it, it pretty much in charge of ev everything. Uh, the important leading small groups, the policy groups, he's taken over those. Through his 
anti-corruption campaign, uh, which has taken down you know, unprecedented levels, uh, senior levels of officials, uh, standing committee, former standing committee members, uh, former member, uh, former chairman uh, of, the China, of, the, of the Chinese military commission. Uh, so he has gone through, he has had his closest ally, Wang Qishan, lead, lead, leading that effort in the first few years, where most anti-corruption campaigns start out strong and fizzle away. His started out strong and got stronger. And even today, uh, it, it continues to intensify. Uh, and this has helped him establish power. Um, so, you know, when those leaders uh, in Alaska, when the Chinese leaders are sitting there, the state secretary and the foreign minister, uh, and the cameras are on them, uh, they are clearly talking to Xi Jinping. Um, and, you know, he has, um, his own rhetoric uh, is about uh, pushing back on hostile external forces that want to challenge or complicate China's rise. A phrase that he has used uh, often that harkens back to Mao Zedong era is Dongsheng Xijiang, which is the East is, is rising and the West is falling. And so, you know, these concepts uh, that Xi Jinping has put forward uh, have to be adopted. Uh, by officials that serve underneath him. And so when you saw Yang Jiechir, they agreed to three minutes opening remarks. The Chinese side did not like uh, Secretary of State Blinken's comments on Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan. They did not like the sanctions that were levied the day before on Hong Kong. They didn't like the fact that they visited Japan and Tokyo before meeting with them in Alaska. Uh, and so when uh, Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan gave their opening three-minute interventions, Yang Jiechir came back with a 17-minute diatribe. And that was clearly the audience that he was focused on was, was in Beijing at Zhongnanhai. Interesting. Interesting. So it um, remains to be seen whether, the, whether this is going to take a constructive turn or not. We'll all obviously watch it unfold over the next years. Let's talk a little bit about sort of third parties to the relationship. First of all, and this is partly a, a, an audience question, Taiwan. What, what's your expectation about how Taiwan, uh, the Taiwan issue continues to unfold? Are the, are the Chinese at risk of miscalculating and actually trying to um, I don't know what the right word to be, invade or conquer Taiwan and, and, and reincorporate it into China. Um, and then there's obviously the, the kind of, uh, what is it called, third party diplomacy of Taiwan, the, the recognition of Taiwan versus the, the People's Republic in certain countries. I think it's still true that most of the Taiwan recognizers are in Latin America, but they're falling one by one uh, as, as the Chinese become more aggressive with blandishments and, and become a bigger factor in trading relations. So what, what's your expectation about how that unfolds? So Matt, good questions, and I'll start with Taiwan. Um, you know, the situation with Taiwan is deteriorating. Um, the Chinese uh, have uh, uh, put uh, quite a bit of pressure on Taiwan in a number of different ways. Um, you know, it, it, is, it is not the outright invasion, uh, which would provoke a potential response from the United States, but is, it is these gray zone tactics where they kind of chip away at things. Number one, in the Bush administration, there was sort of a tacit agreement between Beijing and Taipei that they wouldn't try, uh, Beijing would not try to take Taipei's uh, diplomatic allies, of which they had about 20 
Um, the Chinese over the last several years have taken seven or eight of those. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the rules uh, have gone away with that. Um, international organizations, you know, we used to push, you know, hard to give Taiwan international space. They were an observer to the World Health Organization. China has pushed them out even as an observer, which really was a problem that was highlighted during the global pandemic because Taiwan, you know, had an experience that needed to be part of the World Health Organization dialogue. And frankly, they did a pretty good job in dealing with COVID and it, and it needed to be part of that uh, dialogue in the WHO. I expect the Biden team to begin to push again uh, on getting Taiwan's international space uh, opened up. And then third, the military uh, activities and exercises and pressure uh, that China is putting on Taiwan is really uh, intensifying. Now, there's a debate in the China watching community over the question you asked, which is, will Xi Jinping use this opportunity where in the Chinese view, China is quite strong, came out of COVID well, its economy is getting back uh, in order. Uh, the US is struggling with its politics. It looks at the January 6th insurrection and it tells Chinese leaders that the U.S. is weak uh, and continuing to decline, uh, and and uh, which I which is not something that I agree with, or I think many Americans agree with. Certainly, we have issues, and we will deal with those. Um, but the question is, will Xi Jinping make a miscalculation and uh, make a a a, a very a significant and bold move against Taiwan? A lot of observers think that that's not the the worry uh, that what the Chinese are trying to prevent now is a declaration of independence from Taiwan uh, and that they have been successful in heading that off. This current leader, Tsai Ing-wen, is not uh, pretty moderate. Um, it hasn't done everything China wants it to do, but um, it has not been pushing independence. Um, and so, you know, a lot of Chinese China observers think that that Xi Jinping will not risk China's continued rise uh, by taking a step that could provoke a reaction by the United States that could provoke uh, a real military confrontation uh, and the wrath of the international community. Uh, and so I think in the short term, it may be manageable. It is something that ought to be a significant priority of the Biden administration in terms of its communication with Chinese, with the Chinese leaders. Uh, and the other thing that really needs to uh, people need to pay attention to is the risk of a of an inadvertent collision of our military assets in the Asia Pacific and in particular around Taiwan. You know, China's military modernization has been pretty intense over the last two decades. They've got a lot more ships and airplanes operating in those wa in those waters and in, in the air. Uh, and, the, and, and that raises the chance that inadvertently two ships could collide. And, and you'll remember the EP3 incident of 2001, April, early in the Bush administration, where one of our planes collided with one of theirs and it, our plane crash landed on China's Hainan Island. We got the crew back in about 10 days and we got the aircraft back uh, over time in, in small boxes because they cut it up and, and sent it back home to us. We were able to manage that situation. Uh, we managed the escalation of it. We got our crew back. 
Um, but a couple things. One, we didn't have the antagonism between the U.S. and China that we have today. A nationalism, uh, in particular in China, was not as strong a factor. And lastly, we didn't have to deal with social media, which I think brings a whole different dimension to try to manage a crisis of that kind. And so I do worry a little bit about what would happen in the case that there was some inadvertent collision of our ships or aircraft around Taiwan. What about other uh, sort of <clears throat> traditional trans-Pacific partners, the United States like Japan and Korea? Their, their calculus has to be shifting. Uh, is there a risk there for nuclear proliferation? Is there, is there uh, you know, how do they see this development and, and how, I mean, they have to live there. Uh, whether they like it or not, indefinitely. So, so what is their thought process at the moment? It's a great question, um, and you know, I think one of the one of the common aspects of countries in Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, is that they do want the United States uh, committed to the region. Um, they are worried about um, you know China's over influence uh, in their countries, and they want the U.S. as a counterbalance. Um, and, and countries are hedging in the region. Um, you know, we saw uh, Secretary of State Pompeo would go to the region and talk to our allies and partners, and they got the sense that he was asking them and the Trump administration was asking them to pick sides between the U.S. and China. I don't think that's the right uh, approach because, um, you know, men, third countries, third party countries in the region don't want to pick sides because uh, they rely on China quite a bit, especially in trade and economics. Um, and I will note that uh, Blinken and, Blinken and uh, Sullivan uh, in Alaska, uh, in the public remarks that we all saw, uh, noted that they had traveled to Japan and traveled to Korea before the Alaska meeting, making the point that our allies are going to be a big part of our China strategy now. And Yang Jiechi's response was, that's nice. We saw that. Uh, Japan is our number two largest trading partner and Korea is our number three largest trading partner. Um, making the point that these countries aren't going to abandon China. Uh, however, I will say that uh, we have seen a bit of a shift um, towards uh, looking to the United States. You see this shift as China's aggressive behavior grows. So after the Hong Kong national security law, after the conflict on the Indian border, uh, after seeing what China's doing with Taiwan, we're now seeing countries lean closer to the United States. India, for example, was reluctant, had been very reluctant to take part in the Quad. Um, and because they are trying to, you know, balance their relationship between the United States and China and want to do a lot on the economics and, and trade side. After the clashes this summer on the border, uh, Indian decided to embrace more fully the Quad. And the Indian prime minister was at the meeting uh, with uh, President Biden uh, last Friday. And so, uh, you know, countries um, weigh these things out in different ways. I think Japan is more closely aligned with the United States. Korea seems to be hedging a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, it depends uh, it, with these countries uh, how they view the threat. And I think Japan sees China as a major threat. Therefore, it leans closer to the United States. 
Korea sees the North Korea uh, nuclear program as its main threat. And in that, it needs China uh, and the United States. Um, other countries in the region don't see China as much of a threat, the Philippines, Thailand, and so they're willing to work closer to with China. And I say all this because I do think it is the right strategy for the Biden team to engage allies and partners in the region and, and gather some leverage in dealing with China. But it is not a binary choice for these countries. And it's also not a light switch that you turn on and off. And I feel that many of them were uncertain of America's commitment to the region and to them over the last four years. And so there's a period of building trust and coming together and talking together about the key issues that uh, need to be taken on in the region, including yeah. China. So <clears throat> I wanna spend a moment at the end of the conversation um, talking about your recommendations for how Washington and Beijing should approach this problem. But I wanna ask one other question about third parties and that's our European friends. I, I spent a lot of my career uh, in Europe and, and the old joke used to be, oh, the Europeans, they are our friends and they are always there when they need us. Um, so can we really trust the Europeans? Can we, can we look at them as a source of support in facing down Beijing or is there, they're so focused, especially our German friends, so focused on the Chinese market and penetrating the Chinese market and they, they, they've done a great job, BMW, you know, very, very yeah. well positioned brands in China. Are, are they partners that we can look to for support in this area? Well, I think uh, not fully. Um, but I do think that it is important uh, that we engage our European friends much more on the challenges uh, that China presents. Um, you know, the, we just had a joint uh, announcement on sanctions related to Xinjiang, and that involved Canada uh, and, uh, and, and the EU. Um, and China responded disproportionately quickly and, and, and in an angry manner. And, and it has evoked quite a bit of outrage um, in, in, in Europe. Um, I think that on issues related, for example, to values and human rights, there's a lot of room for the United States to partner with our European friends. In the issue, in the, in the area of governance, where China wants to uh, reform certain aspects of the global governance system. Uh, maybe it's, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the internet management or, um, you know, surveillance systems or a range of illiberal um, uh, aspects that China wants to inject into global governance system. I think we can work very closely with Europe on that. Uh, Europeans view of China has hardened considerably over the last several years, largely because of, of China's policies, behaviors, and actions. Chinese leadership believes that Europe has hardened on China because the US has asked it to, or the, because of the influence of the US. But I think that's a, that's a misunderstanding. Um, the, uh, it was a year ago or two years ago, uh, the European Commission announced its uh, strategic outlook on China document, where it called China a uh, strategic rival in uh, economic and trade aspects, and a systemic rival on issues related to global governance, where it said China had a lot of alternative views uh, on global governance that uh, uh, European friends uh, have great concern about. So I think that 
on those issues, there's a lot of ways that we can partner. Security, strategic issues, maybe not as much. Um, although the UK seems to be leaning forward and wanting to get, in, get involved in some of those issues. But like you said, Germany, France, maybe not. Um, technology, I think, will be difficult because we have our own difference of views on, 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 on data and on a range of, of other technology-related issues. We'd have to sort those out between the United States and the EU before we could approach China in any, in any concerted manner. So I think we should think about uh, partnering with allies uh, and other uh, friends around the globe on specific issues and building coalitions. And I think we have to pick the issues that uh, will work, uh, whether it's Japan, Korea, Australia, or our European friends. Some issues will work better and we need to build coalitions uh, as opposed to thinking that we would cooperate on the full gamut of issues uh, with the entire you know, European bloc. Yeah. So um, we're coming up toward the top of the hour. I want to be respectful of our time. And I do want to talk uh, about sort of your prescription for going forward. I don't know if, the, if it would be possible to squeeze in a, a quick exchange on sort of Africa, Latin America, China's sort of Western near abroad in, in Central Asia and the Belt and Road Initiative. How should we, how should the United States feel about the, the rising profile of China, its rising importance as a trading partner, particularly in our own near abroad in, in uh, Latin America? Well, first of all, I think that, um, you know, our strategy cannot be defensive. Uh, it has to be offensive. And, you know, first of all, uh, what you hear from the administration, even before you get to those broader international aspects is in dealing with China, we've got to shore up our strength at home. Um, we've got to fix our politics if, if we can. Um, we've got to enhance our competitiveness um, and some of that may, may require, um, you know, helping out in terms of technological development and innovation at home where Chinese, China's giving large subsidies and, and creating global distortions in that regard. And if China won't stand down on its own subsidies, we're going to have to kind of take on similar character at home. Um, the idea, I think, in thinking about how to do that, Matt, is uh, Jake Sullivan, who's the national security advisor, was a Carnegie colleague of mine for the last four years, says that you know the United States, when it comes to China, needs to think about how it can run faster as opposed to how can it slow China down. Because slowing China down uh, likely won't work. Uh, and frankly, because of what I said out there, there's a lot of countries that you know, rely on China for certain aspects and they're not looking for that zero sum game type of approach. Um, so that, you know, that'll take a lot of work. Um, and I think that's why you see in, in Alaska, in a sense, I think the meeting came too soon. Uh, you know, Blinken and Sullivan were trying to state the case that America is back um, and that our, our alliances, you know, once again are strong and they've only been in office for a couple months so it, it, uh, it, it, I, don't, I don't think it was all that uh, credible. But I think the approach um, is, is right in terms of shoring up our strength at home and our competitiveness, and then competing with efforts like the Belt and Road with our own approach to infrastructure. Um, and we're not going to take it on in dollar terms. We won't be able to compete. 
Uh, and we won't be able to compete in a lot of the areas where uh, China is in many of the developing countries. Uh, but we can also um, facilitate a broader international conversation around standards for infrastructure development uh, and try to get, again, bringing coalitions uh, together to talk about creating high standards, transparency around issues related infrastructure development, which are some of the failings that China has had, create that international environment, lead internationally on this issue, we might not be able to compete dollar for dollar with China, but we could help in setting standards that countries then agree to abide by. And I think that's more of the approach that we should think about. Yeah, so you sort of alluded that that comment actually makes a segue uh, into our kind of final topic and you've alluded to this throughout, but uh, talk for a moment about if, if you were Tony Blinken or Jake Sullivan, uh, or if you had their ear, what would you be telling them to do? What's, what's, what's the right agenda for the United States for the next several years with respect to China? My, my own sense is they, they have the right thinking on it. Um, I think they, uh, you know, they, I think they have a sense of what they want to do. Politics will make it very complicated for them. Um, one of the things that I would recommend is that they do as little of these high level meetings with the cameras on them as possible. Because anytime you get those very high level summits uh, with the TV cameras and the media there, it always becomes a competition over who wins and who loses. Uh, and it's not very helpful. And I think what we need to do, the United States and China, is more than anything, more than cooperation, is find a way to come together and, and find a platform and a model for solving problems. One of the longstanding chronic problems that have been in the relationship for quite some time now, and I think the ones that come to mind most notably are on the economic and trade side. Um, you'll remember Donald Trump when he traveled to China in November of 2017, uh, within a year after he was elected. And he stood at the press conference with Xi Jinping and he said, China's been taking advantage of us on trade and on economic and business issues. And I don't blame Xi Jinping. I blame President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, and all the US presidents and administrations that have come before me because they weren't firm enough and they didn't do enough to address the issues that are creating these imbalances on the economic and trade side. And I think to a, he had a point, he had a point. We were unable to find a way to address these problems. And I think if the United States and China are able to come together in a lower profile, bringing empowered officials, small groups uh, together to really roll up our sleeves and address these problems, and we can begin to make some progress, that would be the most positive impact that we could have on the way our citizens view the relationship and on the way the world sees the relationship. And lastly, I think I would uh, pick uh, you know, one or two issues that are big, where the United States and China could come together, that if we can find a way to make progress, would focus the attention of our citizens uh, that we have managed to find a way uh, to tackle big things. 
uh, much like uh, when in, in the Bush administration, Matt, you'll remember the Indian nuclear agreement. Yeah. That was strategic in nature. It yeah. was big and it focused the attention of our citizens on the US-India relationship and had said something's going on here, which is really significant and it's pushing the relationship in positive ways for the future. Frankly, the US and China need something like that. But I also think at the end of the day, the Biden administration is right to say they're going to push back and confront China where it is undermining our interests. Need to be much more clear-eyed and direct with China than more direct than we've been uh, in the past. And I think they got a good start on that at Alaska, but it's those other elements of solving problems and finding ways to work together where it makes sense that are gonna be more difficult. Thank you. That makes a great conclusion. And Paul, we're up against the top of the hour and Liz is signaling us that it's time to get off stage. Uh, I really wanna thank you for this really insightful discussion. There's obviously a lot more that could have been said. I left a couple of audience questions dangling, although I think we touched on just about everything uh, that was asked. And I wanna thank the audience for, uh, for their participation and for asking those questions. And Paul, especially uh, you, I think, uh, I think I can speak for everyone uh, that we all learned a lot tonight. Uh, and you, uh, you brought us a lot, of, uh, a lot of new information and a lot of things that we hadn't focused on perhaps in the past. And I'm very, I'm very grateful to you for that and, and wanna thank you for making the time to talk to our group. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, Liz. I really appreciate it. With that, Liz, over to you. Yeah, Paul, Matt, thank you very much. It was an excellent discussion with excellent input. You both are a wealth of knowledge, and so your perspectives are uh, really welcome. So thank you for that. To catch up on our uh, past programs, just head on over to our YouTube channel. You can find us at DFW World. And if you're not a member of us yet, please join us. We'd love to see more of you. I'd love to meet you in person when we uh, eventually make our way back to doing that. And you can visit our website on the membership tab at dfwworld.org for more info. Thank you again, gentlemen. Uh, thank you to the audience for joining us and have a good night. <laughs>